Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I tell you about crimes committed by military members and veterans, and sometimes their spouses. And today, I am back with a second episode of a segment I have named Tales from the Trenches. These are listener stories about things my listeners have personally experienced. They can be funny, scary, spooky, mostly anything is fair game. These are stories experienced and written by you and told by me. If you have a story you want me to share, I will include the link in the show notes where you can submit your listener story for next time. But of course, I cannot guarantee that your story will be aired. A handful of you told me that you didn't like this segment. And for those people, I say, hey, if you don't like it, please skip this episode. No one is keeping you here against your will. I'm at a point where I am very comfortable in myself. And if this segment or this podcast is not for you, it's okay to stop listening. We're all growing up here. All right, I also wanted to point out that this go around, someone recommended Aaron Corbett's case out of 29 Palms, but it did not appear that the listener had any connection to the story. I've actually already covered Aaron's tragic story in a $10 Patreon episode. So if you're interested in hearing Aaron's case, be sure to check out my Patreon. And with that, let's dig into this segment of Tales from the Trenches. This first story came in as a listener-suggested case, but I thought it was a perfect fit for a Tales from the Trenches story, and it involves a few Fulbert colonels. So, of course, I couldn't pass up a story about officers behaving badly. Here we go. An Army officer met an enlisted woman in 1996. I'm assuming he was a major or a lieutenant colonel at the time he met the woman who was a specialist. Now, if you know anything about the military, an officer and an enlisted person cannot be in any type of sexual relationship with each other because it's called fraternization or an unprofessional relationship. And that's illegal for military personnel because it goes against good order and discipline. So in any event, during this illegal relationship, the major told the specialist that they didn't have to worry about using protection because he was like, listen, girl, I had a vasectomy, so I'm safe. But he wasn't safe because the specialist got pregnant. When she confronted the officer about the pregnancy, he avoided her like the plague. You see, as most cases of fraternization go in the military, our boy, the officer, was married. He was probably living what appeared to others to be the perfect life, but he was a damn liar. And poor little hoodwinked enlisted soldier was like, damn man, he has got to pay me child support. She tried to work out a payment plan for child support, but the major was squirrely about it. By the way, the child support was something like $300, so it wasn't a ton of money, but I bet his wife would notice if there was more money missing from the account. Anyway, it does appear that the major was paying something, but not everything. And so eventually, the woman had to get the courts involved. Well, our homeboy, the officer, found a loophole. He avoided most of the court process by always being deployed. He was either deployed or TDY. But that would all come to a halt. By the time that the officer was a full bird colonel, I repeat, a full bird colonel, he went in to get a paternity test. 
because now he was a little more cocky and he had a plan. He went in person to schedule the test and he was set to return a few days later to take the actual DNA test. On the day of the DNA test, a full bird colonel showed up to take the test. But when the DNA staff realized that the man who showed up to take the test and the man who scheduled the test were two different people, they were suspect. The DNA test came back negative, but the staff, well, they raised the issue that they didn't believe the person who tested was the man who was supposed to test. The baby daddy colonel was summoned to court after conspiracy and attempted theft by deception charges were lodged against him. Mind you, the illegitimate child was now 10 years old. Anyway, the colonel admitted that his friend did take the DNA test, but he claimed that the friend took the DNA test without his knowledge. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm, whatever. You keep lying to whoever you think is gonna believe your lies, sir. The fake baby daddy colonel was like, F that mess. He told the court that the real baby daddy colonel forced him to take the DNA test for him because according to him, he had helped him get through Army War College. So do you understand? So fake baby daddy was not doing so hot in Army War College. So real baby daddy colonel helped him. And so then he held that card over his head for later. Anyway, this case is crazy. So if you know anything about War College, it's a college for 06s. And most military officer training is very particular about not getting any help in order to pass the classes. So here we had two full bird colonels that were chuck full of lies. Ugh, I hate this place. Anyway, both men were ultimately charged for this crime. Baby Daddy Colonel was convicted of the charges and he was sentenced to four to 23 months in county prison in Cumberland County. So if you weren't tracking, the man had an affair when he was a major or a lieutenant colonel. He fathered a child. He made full bird colonel, even though he was a lying sack of shit with zero integrity. And then he tried to game the system. Honestly, this entire thing sucks, mostly, though, for the child that he fathered. Now, I did leave all the names out because this case did happen in the early 2000s. But I will put uh, my sources in the show notes. So if you're interested in finding that. You can go there. Thanks to my listener for suggesting this wild, wild case. Honestly, if I didn't read the news story for myself, I would have never believed it. This next story is from listener Lynn. She wrote, this isn't a ghost story from a military base, but it's from a VA hospital. So I think it counts because the ghosts are veterans. I am intentionally leaving the state out of the story. All right. So the main building on campus is almost 100 years old. It was built in the early 1930s and is on the National Registry of Historic Places. It's a gorgeous five-story red brick building with four tall columns in the front. And the lobby is all original with green carpet and the domed ceilings have gold accents. It was added onto extensively in 1994. But the original part of the building is still being used and still has elements in it that can bring you back in time. My old office was on the third floor where all of the offices used to be patient rooms. They've long been converted to offices, but the old bed lights, intercom boxes, and nurse pull cords are still attached to the walls. The whole building makes you feel like you've taken a step back in time when you're in there. The women's restroom on the third floor has plugs that are labeled for shavers because the domiciliary used to be on that floor. A domiciliary is the VA's oldest healthcare program and most commonly used to house veterans who are in addiction and mental health treatment. 
The formal name is Residential Rehabilitation and Treatment Program, or RRTP, but most people refer to it as the domiciliary. After COVID started, we all worked in our offices with the doors closed to avoid unnecessary direct contact with each other. The building was too old for central air, so people with windows have old school window shaker AC units in their offices. My office was in the middle of the floor and didn't have a window, but I didn't need it. My office was always cold. So cold that even in the middle of the summer when the window shakers had a hard time keeping the office cooled off, I had a space heater turned on in mine trying to keep my hands from freezing. I had a couple of experiences while working there. One late afternoon after hours when most people had gone for the day, I walked down to another office to talk to someone. When I exited their office and started walking back to my office, I could hear footsteps behind me. Heavy footsteps, like someone who was wearing boots. I turned around quick to see who it was, but no one was there. I stopped and went back around the corner, but no one was in that hallway either. No one was still on the floor, but myself and the person I had just gone to talk to. I was a little freaked out and I went back to my office. More than once, I caught a glimpse of someone passing by my door. But when I would check, no one was there. We had a cowbell attached to the front door. So when someone came in, we could all hear that someone had walked in. The bell did not ring the times I saw a shadow pass by my door. When I mentioned it during a meeting, one of my coworkers said the third floor, specifically our office suite, was known for having some paranormal activity in it. Oh, great. One evening, I was working late on a project and was alone in my office. It was probably around 5 to 5.30 p.m. Our outer door was locked since I was in there working alone. I had my inside office door open since I was there by myself and I was having to go back and forth to the printer. The overhead lights in the middle part of the office suite were motion sensing. They'd go dim when there wasn't any movement for three minutes. The lights had dimmed and had been dim for five or 10 minutes. So I was sitting at my desk when they flickered on. I got up and looked outside my office. The door was still locked. I hadn't heard the cowbell and all the other doors to offices in the suites were all closed because everyone was gone for the day. I blew it off thinking it was maybe dust or something making the lights flick on. I went back to work and after a couple of minutes, the overhead lights in the middle part of the office timed out again and went dim. I got back to work when suddenly the lights in the middle flicked back on. Okay, that wasn't a coincidence. I got a chill and the hair on my arms stood up. I shook it off and I went back to work. The lights went dim again after a few more minutes. The third time they flickered on, I felt the same chilly feeling and the hair on my arms stood up again. I stood up and slammed my arms on my desk. I shouted, look, I just want to finish my work and go home. If you leave me alone, I can get out of here. I wrapped up what I was doing and booked it out of there as fast as I could. The lights didn't come back on after dimming the rest of the time I was there that night. I didn't ever volunteer to work overtime again after that night. Want to take a guess at what our office suite was when the floor still had patients on it? Well, most people guessed that it was the morgue, but no, that's down on the first floor. Our office suite was the psych ward. Damn. Listen, these stories freak me out. So good for you, Lynn, for confronting whatever was there. Sounds like you are a real badass. This next story is from an anonymous listener. I lived in Hawaii on Schofield Barracks when COVID started. Listening to the news and hearing how many kids went missing during the lockdown was shocking and a bit concerning. I knew when we first arrived in Hawaii that sex trafficking was high, but never thought anything would ever happen to us. 
Before becoming a mother, I never paid attention to my surroundings. However, now I do. My best friend and I would listen to your podcast along with other crime podcasts. My first run-in with what I believe is a child abductor was when both my best friend and I went to Walmart with our younger kids. At that time, they were two six-year-olds and one seven. We had the two youngest in the car and the oldest walking right next to us. We stopped by the kids section to get clothes for the girls when we realized a lady was just looking at us. We both took note and decided to walk away from her and we went down the sock aisle. We were on the corner of the aisle, my friend looking at jeans and me looking at socks. The oldest was standing right next to my friend looking at the jeans when the lady appeared right next to the little girl. When my friend noticed, she grabbed her daughter and pulled her to the car and moved into the aisle with me and the other girls. The lady ended up moving into the aisle with us right next to the cart. Now, I know it could have been a coincidence, but the hair in the back of our necks stood up. She was never looking at any items. She would touch what we were looking at and kept her head down so that her cap would never show her face, but her head would be looking at our direction. After a few minutes of being followed, my best friend decided to ask her what her problem was, and the lady got startled and walked away. We quickly left our car, got the girls in the car, and we left. We called the Walmart, we talked to the manager, and gave our description of the lady, just so that they would keep an eye out. After that, I was always on high alert, which brings me to one of the most scariest moments of my life. There was a bar, a New York deli, and other small restaurants right outside the gate where we lived. We had been going to the New York deli for the three years we had been stationed in Hawaii, and we never had a problem. The last time we went, I drove with my oldest daughter, who at the time was 14 years old, and she's also a true crime junkie. We parked a few stores down from the pizza place because there was no more parking. When we got out of the car and walked to the sidewalk, I noticed a man who had walked over by my car and stopped. I quickly locked my car just to let him know I saw him and to make sure he wouldn't get in to steal it. We walked over to get our order and when we walked out, I noticed a man standing right by the door. I had the pizza in my hands and we turned to start walking to the car. Mind you, the man was standing to our left and we turned to our right to go to the car. Something told me to turn around and I did. But when I turned around, I saw him slowly walking the same direction. I put the pizza in my daughter's hand and told her to run to the car. Without hesitation, she ran. As I ran quickly behind her, I looked back and saw that his pace had quickened as well. What I was not ready for was him having a partner. I unlocked the car for my daughter and as I looked over her shoulder, I saw a lady coming behind her. I quickly shoved her in my car, locked the doors and got my taser out of my purse. The lady stopped dead in her tracks and just stood there. What made this so real for me is I was stuck between two cars. This lady who had a winter coat on in the middle of hot summer day in Hawaii, her hands were in her pockets, a cap on and not making any contact with me. Behind me was a six foot Samoan man. I'm only five feet. I really couldn't yell for help because there was no one around. Luckily for us, a group of bikers pulled into the parking lot right next to us. And I am assuming that made the man and the lady panic. She ended up walking around the car to the sidewalk where the man was and they started to walk away. I quickly jumped in my car, called 911 and followed them around the corner of the building. Unfortunately, by the time we drove around the corner, they had vanished. I wanted to share my story with you because I thank God every day that I stay vigilant. They could have taken my daughter and that is a fear I constantly have. If my story can help others to stay vigilant, I am happy to share. So many kids, not just in Hawaii, get abducted. Okay, 
That was her entire story. But how freaky is that? As a mom of three little girls, I am basically always terrified. My neighbor is a teacher and she recently told me that they are always getting briefed on child sex trafficking. And because we live close to a cross country highway, they are always reminding the teachers to be on the lookout. Because sadly, once a child is taken, it can be minutes by the time they are already on a highway heading out of state. So keep your kids close, my friends. This next story is from listener Myrtle, who also writes for me, and it is a ghost story out of Guam. And because she is a storyteller, she does give us a bit of history. So here we go. Hi, Margot. About 15 years ago, I spent four glorious years stationed on the South Pacific island of Guam. Guam has a history that is thousands of years old. The Shamaru people are thought to have arrived between 2000 and 1600 B.C., It was colonized and Christianized after Magellan arrived in 1521 and after permanent occupation in the 1600s, sadly, much of the old ways were stomped out. One legend that has made it through the ages is that of the Tau Tamonas, or ancient spirits. It is said that you have to ask their permission before you go into the jungle or take anything from the jungle like plants or fruit or trees. If you don't, they'll pinch you and put you in a coconut. At least that's what we were told. We never encountered a malicious Tautamuna during our time on the island, thankfully. The American history of the island started in 1898 when it was ceded by Spain to the United States in the Treaty of Paris. Betcha didn't think you were going to get a history lesson with this, did ya? During the years before World War II, there was a small contingent of American military troops that were stationed on the island. While most people are familiar with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, did you know that almost simultaneously, four hours later, The Japanese also attacked Guam by bombing from the air and an attack by sea. It began a three-year reign of Japanese occupation where thousands were tortured, forced into servitude, and murdered. That was finally broken when American Marines stormed the island and took it back in 1944. Since then, the American military has held a large presence on the island that includes two Navy bases and an Air Force base. There are lots of ghost stories on the bases that include the exchange on what is known as Big Navy, which was supposedly built on top of an old hospital and morgue. Anderson Air Force Base has lots of stories, including one I heard repeatedly multiple times about a Japanese soldier on the flight line who would ask you for a light for his cigarette. I was told that if your house and base housing had any malicious entities residing inside, you could actually request to be moved, no questions asked. We settled into our duplex on Tinian Lane, just down the street from the base elementary and middle schools. Initially, it was pretty quiet in the house, but then I started seeing a movement out of the corner of my eye going from the living room into the hallway. Sometimes there was a silhouette outlined by the light from the laundry room that it passed by. That was totally benign and could totally be written off as passing headlights or a cloud blocking the sun and causing shadows to change. Except it happened at different times during the day and when there wasn't a cloud in sight. Our family dog and cat would look up at random times and stare at absolutely nothing. It took a drastic turn on the day I was sitting in the living room watching TV. I saw the shadow pass by out of the corner of my eye. And when I looked up, there was no kidding, a man standing in my kitchen. Like it was a whole person. He had short sandy colored hair and was wearing a blue plaid short sleeve button down and khaki slacks. 
I got the feeling that he didn't know I was there and he was just going about his business. To me, he looked like how people looked back in the 50s and 60s. Being a longtime fan of shows like Ghost Hunters, I would have to say that it's a residual haunting. I think the shadows and the person I saw are like memories on repeat. He wasn't a Tautamona. I think he was an American GI who had lived there at one time. When I saw the thing, I did a double take like, what the hell did I just see? But when I looked again, he was gone. I saw him a few more times, always in the same spot by the kitchen. I think he was more like a memory, not like an active ghost, if that makes sense. So if you ever get the opportunity to visit Guam, please take time to take in the history and the culture of the Shamaru people. But don't forget to ask the Tatamona's permission before you enter the jungle. Love, Myrtle. I love that girl. That was a crazy story. All right, this next story is also from an anonymous listener. Hey, Margot, I wanted to write you and let you know the story of my friend, Senior Airman John Bottom. Bottom was a member of the 509th Security Forces Squadron, and he ended up being on post during one of our annual exercises. These exercises consisted of 12 plus hour days normally. Once we finally heard index, it was such a relief. Index means it's the end of the exercise, so everyone can breathe a sigh of relief. So Bottom and a couple of other security forces members decided to go back and just have a few drinks to unwind. To my knowledge of the story, while they were drinking, they all got their handguns and started showing them off to each other. This would normally be okay if they hadn't been so intoxicated. One of the individuals present was Dominic Sacco. He was a new member to the squadron, but had spent a year in Korea. He was apparently the most intoxicated individual there, but also had a habit of dry shooting his gun, meaning that he would pretend to shoot or actually pull the trigger when his firearm wasn't loaded. However, that is not how this night went, unfortunately. This time, Sacco had loaded a 9mm round into his gun, forgot that he had done so, put the gun to Bottom's head, and pulled the trigger, shooting Bottom in the head. Bottom was still alive after being shot when first responders arrived, and they were able to get him to Kansas City. Sadly, Bottom was on life support until his parents arrived. His parents made the hard decision to pull him off life support, and ultimately, he passed away on Mother's Day of 2015. I never finally figured out what Sako was charged with, even though the article states second-degree murder. I do know that he only served four years of jail time and is now living his best life in his hometown. So that's the end of the listener's story. So, of course, I wanted to find out what happened. And I found an article online by 13KRCG dated December 16th, 2015. It said that Sacco had been sentenced to four years for first degree involuntary manslaughter. Wow, I'm so sorry to hear about your friend. This is definitely a story that reminds us about gun safety. One, never dry fire at someone. And two, always check, double check, quadruple check if a gun is loaded. This next story is from listener Sarah. She said, quote, it might not be podcast worthy, but it is a story that still cracks us up. My husband enlisted in 2007. During that time, we were in our early 20s and only had one vehicle. So we're at Fort Carson and he calls me to come pick him up. It's a cold and rainy day. 
I pull into the area where I usually pick him up and I see a soldier with his back to me. I think this is the perfect opportunity to surprise him. I put my window down and I roll up real slow. And then in my creepiest voice, I say, hey, baby, can I take you home? This man then turned around so quickly to look at me and he looked horrified. Once I realized it wasn't my husband, we stared at each other for a few seconds and then I drove off. I was mortified, so much so that I didn't even apologize. As I was driving off, my husband called me and asked me if I was done trying to pick up random guys from corners. (laughs) Turns out he was across the street watching the entire thing go down. Definitely learned to pay extra attention to make sure I'm hitting on the right soldier. All right, so that was the rest of her story. And to that, Sarah, I say, totally podcast worthy. And thank you for sharing. So this is our final story for today. It is a ghost story. And this is from listener Sylvia. My wife and I recently moved into on-base housing at Langley Air Force Base located in Virginia. We have a very nice house. But when we moved in, I kept telling her how it felt weird or strange. I didn't like being in the living room alone, and I didn't like walking up the stairs at night. To be fair, I am actually pretty afraid of the dark. As the time had gone on, I kept smelling pipe tobacco smoke, and I kept asking my wife if she was smoking or something. I was like, listen, if you're smoking, just tell me because this is making me crazy. I was probably single-handedly keeping Febreze in business. She kept telling me that she was absolutely not smoking anything. Then the drawers in our downstairs bathroom, the one that I'm scared of, they would open. We have four kids. And so I was thinking, okay, maybe it was one of the kids. However, one night I had to use that bathroom and I saw the drawer open with my very own terrified eyes. That pretty much did it for me. I'm like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I can't do this. I asked a few neighbors and most people have said that weird things happen in their homes as well. What did it for my wife, though, was when she was upstairs using the bathroom and she saw a small girl staring at her in the mirror. It very obviously was not one of our daughters because I am very tall for a woman six foot one and our kids are also tall as heck. And then my wife lost it. Lucky for me, right after she saw that girl, she told me in great detail about the girl and made me scared of our bathroom. Then my wife left for training. Of course, I slept with the lights on. So as it turns out, Big Battle is the site of a pretty significant battle from the Civil War. And I am 100% convinced we are sharing our home with a ghost girl and an older man who really likes smoking tobacco. Now I just tell them to leave me alone, lol. Everything still happens and I hate it. But yeah, that's my story about base housing and how it is absolutely haunted. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to everyone who submitted their listener story. I really appreciate it and I can't wait to keep reading these stories. I'm not gonna lie, these kidnapping and ghost stories got me with my eyes wide open. And listen, if you have your own tale from the trenches that you'd like me to feature on this segment, click the link in the show notes and share your story. I usually wait a few months to put out a new segment, but the sooner I get more stories, the sooner I can bring you more tales from the trenches. 
Until then, my loves, keep telling your friends to check out Military Murder Podcast. And if you haven't already left five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show, please, please do so. Military Murder is a Mama Margot production. Executive producers for this episode are Jen, Tina, Alicia, Falcon 13, Bob, Nicole, and Myrtle. The music was created by Ty Ops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep waiting for more Tales from the Trenches stories from all of you, my lovely listeners. Bye. Mama's working on her podcast. I don't want to.